Nazareth Feeling about half past dead I just need to find a place Where I can lay my head Mr. Can you tell me where a man might Welcome back, everybody, to Try It, You'll Like It. That's where me, Joseph Finn, Randy Perry. Hi, everybody. And Amy Watts. Hello. We take a theme, and every week we discuss a movie and a book relating to that theme. This week's theme, as chosen by Randy, is seasons. All kinds of seasons. Fall, TV, whatever. Well, the big thing I've been obsessed with this week is the new Arcade Fire single, Reflector. It's seven and a half minutes long. It's dark. It's dancey. It features a cameo by David Bowie. It is completely awesome, and I can't wait to hear the full album, which comes out at the end of October. Now, i got to admit, I'm one of those people who, for some reason, has never particularly listened to Arcade Fire. That doesn't speak very well of you. Well, you I can't listen that. to everything. You have Spotify. Make it happen. Amy, do you have anything for us? Uh, well, my TV group, we started Orange is the New Black this week. Um, oh, we nice. watched the first two episodes, and I can totally understand how it is easy to binge watch it. And not from a cliffhanger at the end of every episode sort of way, but just because the creator has done such a wonderful job of just creating this world and such rich characters that you're, you're sucked into it immediately. And you want to know what's going to happen next. Laverne Cox was on uh, W. Kamau Bell last night over on FX. Uh, I don't know if you guys get him up in the uh, up in Canada, Randy. Uh, I'm not sure. We recently got FX Canada, but they only show some FX stuff. Okay, and you guys probably haven't gotten FXX at all yet. So, although the stuff that's going to be airing on FXX, we're actually getting on FX, so it's all weird. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of weird. There's still a bit of a weirdness about FXX right now. Some uh, some areas aren't getting it in HD yet, which just seems kind of weird. But anyway, uh, she, uh, Laverne Cox, who plays the um, transgender woman on uh, Orange is the New Black, was on uh, W. Kamau Bell last night, and she's just fantastic. Yes. Well, now don't tell me too much, because I've only watched the first two episodes. Absolutely. You, I have told you nothing <laughs> that you haven't learned already. Just wait for the chicken. <laughs> I have to say, one of my favorite things in the second episode, which dealt heavily with uh, Red and her backstory, mm-hmm. was the part, it was in the prison, where um, Red is having her legs shaved by another inmate, and she gestures and says, don't forget the toes. I hooted at that, because <laughs> I, I think, I, I, think I, I, had a very, I had a tweet that got favorited a lot one time when it was something like, if you're fair-skinned and dark-haired and a woman, and you've never shaved your toes, I don't believe you. Right. <laughs> I love that uh, I love that in the current season of NTSF SUV colon colon, Kate Mulgrew apparently just decided to keep the uh, red hair. Oh, Really? See, yeah, she didn't bother to change it back. The only thing about that red hair is that's that color of red that red has is the reason I stopped dyeing my hair red at home because I was afraid it was going to start turning out like that. <laughs> and so I just switched to brown. Uh, her with the Ukrainians. I, be- I believe they're supposed to be Ukrainian. The mean already. girls. The Russian mean yes. girls, man. The Russian yes. mean girls. And the funniest joke involving a tit in the last 10 years, I'd like oh, to say. Oh, the tit punch, yes. Yep. 
I think we should uh, avoid spoiling more for people who haven't gotten to it yet. I, unfortunately, still haven't finished Orange is the New Black just because of my Breaking Bad binge. Right, which was the, for the greater good at this particular point in history. Yes, I am actually almost to the end of the first half of season five, so I am uh, only about five episodes behind now. That's incredible. So I'm, I'm working my way through. Uh, as for me, I have uh, not been seeing a lot that's outside of the norm. We finally got around to seeing uh, The World's End last night, which was a very fitting end to the Cornetto trilogy. I concur. God, God bless him. Uh, I'm, and I was listening. I'm going to borrow from F This Movie, the podcast, uh, which I was listening to their podcast on it today, where someone made the interesting comment that I think is kind of right. It's not the funniest of the trilogy, but it may be the best of the trilogy in terms of the emotions it plumped. I will never see it because I don't do movies where the world ends. It's just one of my rules. You okay. can't, you I... can't, you can't make the world end, and you can't kill the dog. Those are the mo- those are my rules for movies. So you've never seen? Uh, uh, oh, God! The joke would have been funny if I could remember his damn name. Who's the banana evolution nitwit? Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron, yes. So you've never seen the Left Behind movies? Nope. Well, that's probably for the better. Also haven't seen The Stand. Also haven't seen, um, there's a Canadian movie that Bruce is always on to me to see. Last Night? Last Night? Yep. It's amazing. Stay together, boys. Yep. It's supposed to be wonderful. Can't it is. see it. It is wonderful. Sandra Oh is uh, fantastic. No, I'm going to watch it. Not unless somebody else wants to sit here and spoon feed me Xanax and pudding. There's another Canadian movie which you will never see, uh, which I'm wondering if Randy has. Randy, do you know Pontypool? Yes, I've seen Pontypool. Pontypool is fantastic. Great use of the uh, zombie as a virus metaphor. Yes. And and it's a talking movie rather than an action movie, which was also fascinating. Absolutely. I'm a sucker for movies that take place in almost only one location, and that's a great use of it. Yes. Also, the world's greatest fake helicopter sounds. <laughs> I mean, y'all, I-, I barely made it through the Doctor Strange Love. I'm just saying. Well, oh. I-, I can see that. Question is, you know, does the world really end in Doctor Strange Love? I mean, they do head off for the, you know, for the mine shafts, so somebody survives. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Probably not me. I'm a plebe. <laughs> and would it help if you know the world doesn't actually end in the world's end? Because it doesn't. Sort of a spoiler, I guess. But, you know. That is kind of a spoiler there, Randy. (laughs) The the movie takes its title from the name of a pub, not from its plot. Oh, see, I thought that was the whole thing, was that they were getting together to have a pub crawl and the world is ending. Well, no, the final final pub, this is not a spoiler at all for the movie, is called The World's End. Okay. All right. Well, maybe I'll see it. Maybe we'll someday. It's it's worth checking you out. Promise if you me, there's not much. an apocalypse. I might go see it. Uh, uh, <laughs> define apocalypse. Oh God. Okay, then I'm not seeing it. All right. So let's get on to your pick, Joe. My pick, since I had the movie this time around, was 1978's The Last Waltz, directed by Martin Scorsese, and chronicling. Well, basically, it's a concert film with interviews of the last concert of The Band on Thanksgiving Day 1976 in San Francisco. What this is basically is them having having tired of the road after, as they describe it, about 16 years together and eight years on the road, deciding to have one last blowout with, with musical guests. Basically, it's 
several songs, about 28 in the movie altogether, and there's a ton more that are on the uh, the album of it. I believe uh, 41 tracks in, in all. And interspersed with interviews and them talking about various things, being shown how things work by Scorsese. And that's basically the movie. It's not the most complicated concert film of all time. You're not getting Stop Making Sense. Uh, have, have either of you seen Stop Making Sense? I'm sorry. I have not. I have, but I don't remember a lot about it. It was about two decades ago now. Okay. And that's basically the movie. Basically, it's just a concert film. But it's what I like about the concert film. I don't think it's a great concert film. I just wanted to be upfront about that. But what I like about the film is that it's the end of a journey. And that's kind of why I chose it for the seasons, because it's a kind of an appropriate fall movie because it's an ending. It's... Here we are, this is what our story was, and we are just kind of drawing the curtain down on our career as a band. I have to admit, I mean, I thought it was beautiful to look at, and I will say also it was beautiful to listen to. Um, Put on the surround sound, and I had the collector's edition DVD, and boy, it was beautiful sound. I had the Blu-ray, and I honestly didn't think it was that great looking. Maybe they just kept in all the green or something. Well, yeah, I mean, they did that, but, I mean, that's okay, because that's how it was shot. But it was just the the, the lighting and the, the angles, and, and they pulled the amazing race trick of never getting an actual cam- – never having one cameraman accidentally shoot another one in the frame. This is true. <laughs> um, which, you know, is, given the number of angles he used, had to be an incredible dance to do that. Um, but – I have to admit that I'm just not a huge fan of the band themselves. Oh, so I'm right, I'm it, right it there with of, you, Amy. So it kind of underwhelmed me in that regard. Uh, I pretty much agree. Yeah, I, it's it's one of those things where if I'd been a bigger fan of the band, I might probably enjoy the movie a lot more than I did. It was still definitely enjoyable to watch, and I think a large uh, factor contributing to that was the uh, the incredible list of guest stars that they had performing with them. Yes, let's skip ahead of the uh, guest star, because I think that's the portion we're all going to want to talk about a little bit more. I thought the list of guest stars in this is really damn impressive. I mean, this is 1976, so we're just before the breakout of a lot of people that might have otherwise been on this, say Springsteen, for instance. If If this was five years later, Springsteen would almost certainly have been at this concert, I think. But it's interesting to see who they have instead of him. I mean, not instead of him, but the, because the, a lot of these guests are great. I mean, we have Joni Mitchell, who just kills in Coyote, which I think is one of the highlights of the movie. I agree. But see, I don't like Joni Mitchell. I, 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 no, actually, I don't understand the people who dislike uh, Joni Mitchell, but I can, I can appreciate I, that. How's that? I was going to say, she's one of those people that I appreciate more than I actually like. Like, I get what she's doing, I understand how she's doing it, and that she's doing it very, very well. It's not something I'm ever going to voluntarily listen to. Okay, let me ask you this, since you say that about uh, Joni Mitchell in this. What's your feeling on the uh, Emmylou Harris segment? Um, It was fine. I mean, you know, I I, I feel like it was maybe before Emmylou. I think there was a big part of her early career where she didn't quite have the same confidence that she does now. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I mean, because the first time I was really aware of Mimi Lou Harris was um, when she was on a Lilith Fair tour uh, in the 90s. And I went to Lilith Fair and I had, I mean, I guess I'd heard her name kind of floating around, but I'd never heard her. And she came out on the stage and she just blew me away. And then I'm like, okay, I will now find out more about this person. And 
I do feel like just seeing her then in the 90s when she was almost like a grand dame and, and there were all these, you know, the, the other musicians that evening were clearly all kind of odd to be playing the same stage as her. She had so much more like confidence and swagger, whereas she almost seemed nervous in the the last waltz, um, you know, like almost cowed by, you know, she was the one being cowed by the other presence on the stage. And not to make light of it, but I almost kept thinking, wow, I kind of wonder, is it the hair? Oh, <laughs> I don't know about that, but it was weird. I was like, oh, right, she hasn't always been white-haired. <laughs> right. I'm looking it up right now, and she would have been, this is 1976. She would have been uh, 29 at the time. Well, it's also like when you see old videos or concert of R.E.M. and you're like, wow, Michael Stipe used to have hair. <laughs> and very, very 1983 hair. It was all fluffy and curly. <laughs> I guess I liked some of it. Well, the, the, the guest artist that I think surprised me the most, you know, if you were to line them all up on stage and say, okay, which one of these ones is not like the other ones? Who would you say is that? Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond. Clearly. I mean, I'm like... You know, here are all these other people that, like, now have so much cred in the rock music pantheon, and Neil Diamond. <laughs> Neil, Diamond <laughs> Neil Diamond does, though, as a songwriter. As a yeah, songwriter, but, I mean, it's like, I think, because I also have to say, I got a huge whiff during the whole thing of just like, oh, right, these are the, this is the genesis of, Mumford and Sons and Avett Brothers and Philip Phillips, you know, is what's happening here on this stage. These are, you know, this is the, these are their, ans you know, these people are the ancestors to that current crop of music. And I'm pretty sure none of them would count Neil Diamond as an influence. I think uh, if I remember something that I read correctly, um, that Robbie Robertson, just before this was made, had actually been involved in producing Neil Diamond's album or something. Ah. So that's the connection there. I and he went on to become, Robertson went on to become quite the producer, right? Yes. Yeah. Whatever the, that is, whatever the connection is, Neil Diamond kind of looks like he doesn't know why he's there either. Yeah. It looks like he's happy to be there, but he's looking around going, okay, this is not especially my crowd. Right. But but then again, you also have people who ordinarily at that time you might not expect being with the with the band, including what I think is actually the best guest star of the night. That's the Staple Singers. Oh, I know. I don't know if I'd count them though because they uh, when they performed the Wait, it wasn't actually at the concert. Uh, then we have to get into the small problem yes. of this supposed concert film that there are a couple of segments that are just plain. Not filmed at the because concert. The Emmy Lou was obvious because they swing the camera around and you see the lack of audience. Well, and then if you look on the IMDb trivia page, it'll tell you that Robbie Robertson's mic was off for the majority of the show. So if that's the case, then what were the people in the ballroom hearing? You know, were they? I believe they were probably hearing, uh, I'm sorry if I mess up his name, uh, LeVon Helm. LeVon Helm. But even when Robbie has lead, I mean, so were they not hearing anything or were they, I, I just, I was confused by that. 
I think the idea was, uh, honestly, I think it's kind of uh, Robbie's supposedly the lead, but in reality, Levon, Levin, Levon, I don't I know. I say Levon is, because uh, he shall be a good man. Huh? It's an Elton John <laughs> reference. Just go with it. Oh, okay. I'll go with it. Also, I'm pretty sure that if you're from Arkansas, your name is Levon. Oh, it's not okay. Levon. It's Levon. Oh, and as I go, as I pawed through the uh, the list of the songs, by the way, can we stop for a moment and acknowledge Ronnie Wood's tuxedo shirt? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was pretty fun. Also, Van Morrison's little glittery jumpsuit. That was pretty adorable. A skosh too tight, but He's pretty so tiny. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, I, I suppose it's all relative, Amy, but I, I couldn't believe how short Van Morrison actually was. He's a little van in your pocket. <laughs> I will say the other thing about The Last Waltz that kind of... There's something about a lot of 70s rock music and, and like, 60s, 70s rock music, of which the band are very emblematic, that just gets under my skin because they're so earnest and yet I feel phony at the same time. Like, one of their biggest hits is The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. And there's only one American guy in the whole band. I'm like, no, you Canadians, you don't get to sing about our war. Go away. Sing about your own wars. You weren't even a country then. Yes, we were. Sorry, Randy. No, they weren't. Canada didn't become oh, a... No, wait, Canada right. didn't confederate 67. until 1871. Yeah. 67, excuse but me. But it's just... And, and that whole, like... I don't know. There's something a little uneasy about how it's like they bring up muddy waters. And it's like, look... We like this black man, and we want to sing like him. And I don't know. There's just and the staple singers feed into that too. And there's just something I can't put my finger on it, but there's just something crazy about the whole thing. Is it partially perceived cultural appropriation, or is it because the bands? sound, their sort of southern country rock sound is different than, say, what the Rolling Stones were doing, which was much more directly out of the blues. And Muddy Waters is, of course, a much more natural fit for, like, the Rolling Stones. That, and and it is just sort of like, okay, so the Rolling Stones are definitely influenced by the blues, but they went and they took it and made it their own. Yeah. You know, whereas I feel like the band... It, it, I don't know. There's just something like, as, even though, okay, I'll put it this way. Even though I don't like Joni Mitchell necessarily, I don't feel she's in any way inauthentic. And there's something about the band that just gets on my nerves in that way. Oh, I totally understand that. I, I kind of feel the same way. I'm not sure I'd go as so far as to call it cultural appropriation, though. I think you're definitely right that it's, it's really edging on that. But there is something about that folksy rock that they're doing that feels like, is this them just kind of borrowing from other bands? They're doing it well, but it feels like they're just repeating stuff and they know they're doing it. I mean, well, I, I'll keep my views on Bruce Springsteen to myself because I don't, people know where I live. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's just, I get a little uneasy and and you can certainly say that you too could fall in this category in its latter years as well of you know kind of like oh yes i understand your downtroddenness mr billionaire you know and it's just like 
I, I don't know. It's just, mm. I, I think actually what I said in an email to a friend was that, you know, them singing the night they drove old Dixie down and being all banjo and, you know, uh, country and all that. I'm like, it feels about as authentic as Jenny from the block. Ouch. But you know what I mean? It's just like, it sort of feels like you guys aren't this anymore. I mean, if you can have uh-huh. all of these famous people come to your sold out show at the ballroom where Martin Scorsese is for free filming your last concert, you're not down home anymore. So, well, so Amy, not drop things. Okay, go ahead. A follow-up question. Yeah. So if, say, someone is known as being kind of a, a blue-collar artist, for want of a better term, be it the band or Springsteen or something like that, and then they become successful, are they then not really allowed to do the stuff that that they did when they were younger and less successful and struggling? Is it not oh, okay. possible for an artist to put him him or herself in someone else's shoes and try to honestly tell those stories? And and that's I think something that Springsteen has done well, I will say, and why he manages to stay on the right side of authentic for the most part to my ears is that we know that he, and I think he would even acknowledge that at this point when he's telling these stories of the blue-collar life, he's telling stories of people he knows about. Yeah. You know, he's putting himself in their shoes. He's not trying to claim that that is him. Whereas I don't feel like there's that distinction for the band. I feel like, you know, they want to still be these kind of, groovy hippie guys and i i don't know i mean i i wish i could define it better i wish i could articulate more why they just feel phony and i think i mean phony in the very not just in the way that we use it but i think also in kind of the the salinger holden caulfield kind of meaning of phony and if i can make the distinction for uh for springsteen I think he gets a little bit more of a pass from me because so many of those songs about blue-collar life are semi-autobiographical because he did grow up in, the, in these kind of communities. Well, but when, then when he's, it's like listening to a Billy Joel when song, When he's writing new songs addressing those issues, he, he doesn't necessarily... I mean, like the We Take Care of Our Own, the, you know, the recent hit, that's got a broader appeal, that's got a broader viewpoint... And and could be about a lot of things. We could mean a lot of different things. And so, therefore, you know, it doesn't necessarily feel inauthentic. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. I just Maybe it's just my uh, – I've lived in Athens too long, and I'm allergic to anything vaguely resembling hippies. So so you're basically you're, you're half Cartman. Is that what I'm hearing? You, you hate the hippies? I might be. I might be. <laughs> Those damn dirty hippies. I don't, I don't, I don't have it much truck with them. And speaking of snarky kids, I think it's a good time to turn to our book of the week, because this has a kid to outsnark all kids. Amy, care to do the introduction? I wouldn't say snark. I would say precocious. Uh, so let me give you the <laughs> setup. The book I chose is called Last Days of Summer by Steve Kluger. Um, it came out in 1998, and even though it has as its heart a young boy, there's absolutely no way in which you would want to call this children's literature. Uh, it is, it is a hundred percent written for an adult audience. Um, 
the basic story is you have a kid named Joey Margulis in 1940 Brooklyn um, who is now he's obsessed with baseball and he's decided that Charlie Banks fictional third baseman for the New York Giants is going to be his idol and he keeps pestering Charlie Banks until eventually a friendship develops and Charlie gets more involved in Joey's world and Joey in Charlie's world. And then it progresses over the next couple of years. We've got kind of some different topics that I'd like to steer us towards. But first of all, I'll ask what I always ask, which is, did you like it? I did. I very much like it. liked it. I very much enjoyed reading it. Um, thinking about it since finishing, I have a few reservations about certain aspects of the 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 tidiness of the story as well as sort of the uh the corner that Kluger kind of paints himself into with the format of the novel uh, but we can talk about those a bit more i definitely enjoyed it i i was moved by the ending uh the room got kind of dusty when i was finishing reading the book so yes i, I very much enjoyed it joe i love this novel i'll admit I oh did you i was afraid you were gonna hate it okay good <laughs> God, no. I, I love this novel. In fact, I got it from the library on Tuesday. Took, had a little bit of a wait to get it in. But I'd already read it before, so that wasn't a problem. Figured, oh, I'll just skim through it to refresh myself. Nope. Read the whole thing through again in, even, in an evening. Not a problem. Loved it. So let's talk a little bit. I mean, since our theme was seasons, um, I took the theme a little more literally, I think, uh, in some ways. Because, you know, there it is right there in the title. Summer. <laughs> um <laughs> But as it relates to this theme, I mean, so that's how it relates to the theme that was chosen by Randy. But um, as it relates to the themes in the book, uh, even though typically, you know, you have this idea that like, okay, the seasons of your life, you know, spring is youth, summer is, you know, kind of your young adulthood, and then, you know, fall and, uh, and autumn being maybe your middle age and your, your senior citizen years being, you know, the winter. Uh, but I don't think that necessarily jives with this. For th me, I think it means summer more in the sense of summer being those days of innocence. I mean, and I think a lot of us, I mean, especially when you throw baseball into the mix, uh, you, you have sort of this motif of summer being innocent. And both of the main characters, Charlie and Joey, face some, do a lot of growing in the course of this. I mean, I call Charlie, you know, the adult, but I mean... I think what he's 23 when we meet him and at the age I am now, I'm like, Oh my God, that's so young. I can't believe, <laughs> you know, what, what Charlie goes through <laughs> and he's only 23. So I think, you know, that's part of it is, is the last days of summer is that kind of loss of innocence. Um, so I'm looking at the kind of notes we had jotted down here. Who put in the last days of American childhood? Oh, uh, that would be me. You want to go a little further with that? Certainly. There's an interesting motif, I think, in novels that are set in the early days or mid-days of World War II. And unfortunately, in not to get too political, but a bit of the greatest generation thing, that America grew up at the time of World War II, that we somehow became more adults, that this is the first time we became an adult nation, which, quite frankly, is bogus in a lot of ways. But I think it's an interesting motif that exists in American literature, and it really does get tied up in American baseball a lot of the time. 
one of the most written about baseball teams in, in American literature is probably the Brooklyn Giants, probably the New York Giants and the Brooklyn Dodgers. Two teams that weren't the super teams of their, of their time, but huge rivals. They were the team of the, not the, uh, for lack of a better term, not the downtown fans of the Yankees, but they were the teams for the people that were scrapping out in Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx, the people who went off and fought in World War II. So that gets tied into it a lot. Um, I, I think, I mean, I think even if you're not specifically tying it into World War II, I think any generation that experiences a major war, that does age you rapidly. I mean, I think you're right that it's not particular to World War II. Uh, but, you know, I think that was there certainly for the people that encountered World War One. you know, and you go back even further, the people that fought in the Civil War. And I mean, you know, if you... I know you don't like Gone with the Wind, but that's definitely a theme of Gone with the Wind is the, you know, the loss of that kind of beautiful youth way of life into something much grimmer. Um, And that is one thing that I'll give uh, Gone with the Wind credit for, because it's completely correct, even on a scale that no other war in in U.S. history even approaches. So I think that's how the title relates into both our theme, but then also the themes in the book is that it is really capturing this um these this kind of golden moment of of young joey's life um randy you mentioned the format you want to kind of set up for us what the format was and how it worked yeah well the um the book is primarily told as a series of letters between joey and charlie with a few other characters thrown in as well, like uh, Charlie's girlfriend, Hazel, and his uh, fellow ballplayer, uh, Stuk. And then there's there's a couple of other things, like interviews between like uh, like a counselor and, and Joey, and then letters from the principal, and then the rabbi, because Joey's preparing for his bar mitzvah, and the bar mitzvah stuff I thought was hilarious. Oh, yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also wonder if... That's a limitation of the book. I think that that structure works very well for the first third when when Joey and Charlie are first kind of getting to know each other and uh, Charlie and the team are often on the road. And so they're not spending a lot of time together. Then there's there's a section in the middle of the book in the story where uh, Joey goes on the road with the ball team as a bat boy. And... So that is also told in letters between uh, Joey and his friend Steve and then letters to Hazel and stuff like that. So I just and part of it, it just felt a bit awkward, but I definitely enjoyed it. There, there was the, a couple of times when Joey and Charlie seemed to be writing the same letter and like just kind of handing the pen back and forth, which was funny, but awkward. Yeah. Um, like when they were writing to Hazel. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's the, that's the point where I agree with you that it does seem a little awkward in those dual uh, letters. Yeah, that and I just didn't, that didn't bother me so much because I mean I could I could almost see that I mean given that I have received letters in the past from people like my parents you know where you know my dad would interject something in the middle I think some of it for my 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 quibble with the format is uh, some of the things that were very very ephemeral felt like to me just taking up a page count, you know, like where we saw ticket stubs or, um, report cards. 
I loved the report cards. Oh, the report cards are great, especially <laughs> the responses. I loved the report cards because they had some substance to it. But when it was just like, you know, the the bill for uh, uh, an entertainment venue, you know, like, okay, here's who's performing what tonight. I mean, they're interesting, but at the same time, most of the time I felt like those could have been cut from the book and it wouldn't have suffered. They were nice to have there. They weren't essential. Actually, the ones I could have done without were the uh, little messages back and forth between him and uh, Craig Nakamura. Oh, you didn't like the Green Hornet? Nah. Oh, I thought those were great. The only thing, the only problem I had with that was that they would be in the form of notes. To me, like that would be more like something you whisper along the drain pipe or something, you know? Right. Yeah. Like I can't believe that these two top agents put anything down in writing. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I should have looked up, by the way, just how many Japanese Americans were living in Brooklyn in 1940. Not a whole lot. I mean, that's why Craig is getting his ass whooped as much as poor Joey. So we right. should, we should this is an Italian neighborhood, by, by the way. We should explain. Yeah, let's explain a little bit about the neighborhood, which is that. Um, so what's happened is Joey uh, and his mom, their the the their father, the father husband in that fig in that family has ditched him for another woman and he's still rich and living in downtown and they are now living in Brooklyn. And so there's a little, they're the one Jewish household, Joey, his mom and his aunt Carrie, uh, in a predominantly Italian American neighborhood. A neighborhood that I picture is pretty much the one that is in the flashback parts of Godfather 2. Yeah, yeah. Well, and like you were saying about how the Giants and the Dodgers end up being in a lot of these sort of nostalgic memory movies. And since we just, you know, talked about Scorsese, I mean, I could picture Scorsese filming the Brooklyn parts of this story. A hundred percent, right? Oh, absolutely. So I think that's interesting because I think... Uh, you know, growing up in the South, like I did, you know, we always heard about segregation and, and you know, the, the divided neighborhoods and busing and things like that. And so it's interesting to me to learn that it doesn't matter. Anywhere you go, people are going to self-segregate into their own little tribes in their own little neighborhoods. And in this case, you've got the Italians, and they're not happy about the Japanese kid and the Jewish kid in their neighborhood. And I also think it's very interesting. I mean, this book came out in 1998 before bullying became quite the buzzword that it currently is. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet that's 100% what it starts out being about. I mean, that's why he originally writes to Charlie is he wants to impress the bullies in his neighborhood. And, you know, I like that it's dealing with bullying head on in a way that a lot of current stuff now doesn't really want to get into it. You know, I mean, like for Joey, I mean, yeah, it sucks, but at the same time, it's a part of life. You know, like he doesn't necessarily, I mean, how do I put, he's the victim, but he doesn't feel victimized. Does that make sense? Right. It's just a man. It's a usual part of his day, frankly, which I mean, is horrible. But Yeah. He doesn't like it, but he's not, it's never it's not beating him down mentally right and so he starts contacting this third baseman because partially because well he's making up these stories about all sorts of things and he wants to get attention so he decides to decides to try and get it for some reason from the third baseman from the New York Giants well i think he's very smart in picking this 
guy because this was somebody that's kind of new to the majors, right? So yes. not everybody, he's not everybody's guy yet. You know, he's getting early on the Charlie Banks bandwagon. Right. <laughs> Which, I mean, we see throughout the the book that, that Joey it ends up being quite prescient on a lot of matters. So, mm-hmm. of course, he yes. picks himself a good a good fella to become the fan of. If I may make a historical sidebar here, oh. uh, the, the actual third baseman at the time for the Giants was a guy by the name of Burgess Whitehead, which is just a great name. <laughs> Middle name mm-hmm. Urquhart. U-R-Q-U-H-A-R-T. Yeah, they don't make names. That's like a name, name, yeah. No, uh, he was a seven-year veteran at that point. He was from uh, Windsor, North Carolina. Yeah, it is funny, like, how much of this I had to kind of... Because, like, I mean, of course I'd heard of Mel Ott and Leo DeRocher. Did he say it, Leo DeRocher? Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of the other, like, Christy Mathewson and, and some of the other players that get mentioned. And I thought, okay, I know Charlie Banks is made up. But I actually went and looked up Stoop to find out if that was made up or not. And yes, it is. <laughs> you know, I don't know much about baseball from the 40s. I had to look this stuff up. Uh, which kind of gets us into um, a topic of the history. One of the things I really liked about this book was that it made, I mean, of course I'd heard of the Japanese internment. But it's amazing to me how much little bits of history he sneaks in to this book. That had me going off and reading. Like, I didn't know that Earl Warren was as intensely involved with the internment as he was. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, just other little bits and pieces of history in there. Does anything like that, I mean, did, did this, anything in this book send you guys to Wikipedia? Uh, I'll admit no, because I knew the general outlines of pretty much everything there. Uh, that sounds horribly conceited, but... Yeah, I mean, national, uh, it, you had the NRA at the time, the National Recovery Act. I knew the basics of that. Uh, Earl Warren, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, early the president's secretary. And we should note that in the, uh, that in the, one of these sidebar uh, notes is that Charlie keeps writing to uh, President Roosevelt and giving him suggestions on how to deal with things. Suggestions would turn out to be rather prescient, as Amy put it. And he keeps getting responses back from Early, who was the uh, secretary to uh, President Roosevelt. So, um, what about you, Randy? There was stuff that probably uh, would have sent me to Wikipedia to read more about it if I um, was, like, writing a book report. <laughs> <laughs> Are you telling me you lack that natural intellectual curiosity, Randy? No, 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 no. It's, it's not that. It's just I – yeah, there, there was stuff that – as I was reading, I was like, oh, I should look that up more, and then didn't go back to it. <laughs> I have to admit that um, I didn't realize it, but I think this book is where I picked up the habit of saying smokes <laughs> all the time in front of things. And, I mean, I still do it. And I'm like, I, when I was reading, because I read this book for the first time several years ago, and I'm like, that is where I picked that up. <laughs> it's a useful word, that. Um Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the religion. We touched on it earlier. So Joey, as we mentioned, is Jewish, and I I guess the best way to describe uh, Charlie is lapsed Protestant. And, you know, there's Jewishness all the way through this book. I mean, just from the very beginning. And, I mean, Aunt Carrie could not be drawn as a more typical type of Jewish woman. 
but she's hysterical. She's a very hysterical woman. <laughs> There's little tidbits that make her feel really real. I just love little bits like when they, when he gets when they eventually get invited to a Giants game, she has this reaction to Charles that Charlie that for some reason she keeps going to the uh, woman's room every time he comes up to bat. Well, or, like I love her reactions to the uh, to the report cards, like you know. He got seven A's. Do you want to open a vein? <laughs> I could just picture. I can hear that this woman is played by Toba Felcha in my in my fictional movie of the of this book. Uh, you've lost the Toba Felcha. Is she the one who always reminds me? Of, she's the older version of the uh, of the mother from uh, my big fat uh, Greek wedding. I think she might actually be the mother in. <laughs> I can't or she's the aunt. She might be the aunt in that. I don't remember. <laughs> she, she, I remember from a few episodes of Law and Order, and she was the mother. She was in Kissing Jessica Stein. She was Kissing she, Jessica Stein. She was the mom in that. She was the, yeah, uh, I've never actually seen that movie. Oh, Joe, you should re- you should rectify that. It's really good. And then I love this where she says uh, it's talking about is this is when they're on the road and Aunt Carrie, uh, and and they're riding back to Hazel. And uh, talks about how Aunt Carrie called three times while they're on the road. And uh, Charlie says, um, yeah, one time to talk to Joey about such things as teeth and et cetera. And the other two times to tell me I should cut my tongue out due to God not waiting online. How come she always says you will not hear another word from me 20 minutes before she stops talking? <laughs> and I was oh, I know this woman and I would drink with this woman. She wouldn't drink, but I would drink with her. And, you know, I would go shopping with this woman. I, I, I would like Aunt Carrie very much. Uh, and I have to admit that, uh, you know, I had to look up a few things here and there. But I also like the because Charlie is completely unfamiliar with it. It gives the author Kluger a very easy way to explain some of the things that are going on around, you know, Jewish culture and Jewish customs and even the language. Um, through the character of Charlie, not understanding things. I know a decent amount of stuff about uh, about Jewish culture. What the heck were the coconut things? I'm guessing they were macaroons. I thought that too, but I'm like, macaroons are that? A, was that a Jewish thing? Even, I don't know if it was, but that's certainly what she was making. Okay. <laughs> All right, so. I want to, you know, I I really love this book, and that's, of course, one of the reasons I recommended it. But I have to say, the thing that does kind of niggle at me about this book is what I think of as the gumpiness. Yes. Does that bother you, or are you okay with it? And by the gumpiness, I, I guess what I mean is, you know, of course he ends up with the baseball friend. Of course he wins the essay contest to meet Eleanor Roosevelt. Of course he does. You know, it's like, you know, all he keeps meeting all these famous people. And, I mean, it's it's Zelig, it's Gump, it's whatever. But how? Do, so how did you feel? Did that bother you? Were you okay with it? What did you think, Randy? Uh, baseball players and singers and other celebrities are not an uncommon uh, romantic coupling. So in terms of the when uh, we meet other celebrities through Charlie and Hazel, I was mostly fine with that just because that all sorts of makes sense. In ter- it makes all sorts of sense in terms of the 
the celebrity and the the fame that comes with being an athlete and things like that. So I was I was mostly fine with that. I thought the uh, Hazel's rivalry with uh, with Ethel Merman was really funny and only yes. kind of crossed the line into gumpiness once where they mentioned that that Merman was in the same room as Gypsy Rosalie and you know you'd never think of the two of those names together which was a bit too nudge nudge wink wink given Just didn't Merman play Gypsy Rosalie's later on she played Gypsy Rosalie's mother Mama Rose yes Rose ah okay okay yeah. oh god I would not want, I would not want to see Ethel Merman playing Gypsy that that just gives me nightmares See, I, I, I've i never seen Gypsy, so uh, I, yeah. Speaking of things to rectify, Amy. Absolutely. Well, you know me and musical theater. Uh, that is the greatest thing ever. Uh. <laughs> now, but Did if you, you tell me to... the merm is involved, I might get invi- I might get interested. Um, here's, here's a guilty little confession, though. I don't get Ethel Merman. I not just, to get. I, her voice drives me nuts. <laughs> No, it's wonderful. I mean, I guess Ethel Merman is my clean the house music. <laughs> like, I just put it on and I belt along with Ethel and, and we get shit done. It's good. All right, let me tell you the movie of Gypsy, though, that, that starred Ethel Merman on Broadway, uh, is a vast improvement because they replaced Ethel Merman with Rosalind Russell. But they also take out uh, Together Wherever We Go. Thank God. What? Oh, oh, yes. oh, musical theater fight, girls. <laughs> oh, it's on now. <laughs> you know the good use of that song? It's in a Brady Bunch episode. Oh, my. Do I need to take away, do I need to check, do I need to check for guns here? Are we going to pull out the Glocks in this little debate? No, we'll just have a dance fight like in West Side Story. Oh, Lord. Okay, so <laughs> I think my reaction overall to the gumpiness, if I can say it that way, is... I think, and I have to admit, I never read Winston Groom's book. I only saw the film. Um, I feel like in Gump, at least, and I, I haven't seen Zelig, so I'm not sure about it, but with Gump, at least, things happen to Gump. Whereas I feel like with Charlie, with Charlie and Joey, with Joey, Joey makes this stuff happen. Yes. And he is such a little force of nature, this Joey. That if he wanted to make, if he wanted to get an invite to the White House, he would do it. I mean, this kid is that determined. And he worked for that invite. He won a national contest on it. With a a letter that almost made you cry. That's when I, that might have been when it started to get a little dusty. So, I I, I mean, I guess that's why I was, I mean, yes, it stretches credibility. But at the same time, I'm okay with it because it stretches credibility in the sense that I want this kid to exist. Absolutely. And I think this actually ties into what my – here's my explanation for the gumpiness. And I think it might stretch it a little bit in the White House part, but, you know, he worked for it. There is a certain subsect of Jewish magical realism <laughs> mid, of 20, in 20th century literature. I can think of a couple other authors who do it. Kaim Potok uses it a bit. Uh, Pete Hamill in novels like uh, Snows in August uh, and Forever. A certain amount of using, and usually very light-hearted, kind of impinging on Jewish myth, for instance. It's not quite Jewish myth in this one, but I think it's a bit in the same 
literary tradition. I, I, like I said, I, it just it works for me in the same way that like you know I want to believe that Encyclopedia Brown can solve all those mysteries. You know, I want to believe that Ramona Quimby always comes out on top. And I want to believe that if Joey puts his mind to a scheme, it's going to succeed. And and so it works for me in that in that respect. Cool so realism. let's pick up here and I will just say, what did you guys think of the epilogue? I didn't like it. Okay. Let me wait. Hold on. Let me back up. In general, do you like epilogues? They have to be quite good. I could have done without the epilogue on this. See, what I was I was okay with this one, if only because it it was short. Like I didn't, I wouldn't have wanted it to be any longer. Yes, I, I'm I'm in agreement with that. Why didn't? But but Randy, you disliked it. It, it was very tidy. Um, I think I would have liked. And this is, of course, a spoiler, but the last thing that we actually hear from Joey's perspective is his last letter to Charlie, where he's ecstatic about um, Rachel. Rachel? Rachel. Yes. And then, of course, the tragedy over the last few pages happens, but we don't actually see anything, again, from Joey's perspective. I just, I really liked that. Uh, I could totally see the instinct to have an epilogue and to have... In particular, this kind of epilogue and this kind of story, um, but it—I thought it was unnecessary. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't find like there's sometimes when an epilogue makes me angry because I'm like, no, you, you you had the perfect ending and now you screwed it up by putting this on. I call it the happy little tr- the 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 one happy tree too many. Um, you know, Bob. Did you know Bob Ross? Do they have Bob Ross in Canada, Randy? Uh, yes, because we did have PBS, and I do remember actually watching Bob Ross when I was a kid. And, and, and you know, he'd be Happy painting truths. this thing, right? And it would look so good. I mean, for being Bob Ross, it was good. Bob Ross, right? And then he'd put on one last tree, and it would screw the whole thing up. And you're like, no, you should have stopped before that last tree. It's the Project and, and, One Way advice of taking off the last thing you put on the outfit. Something like that, yeah. And, I mean, I kind of feel like that with a lot of epilogues, is that, and especially with movies, like, Joe and I have had the argument before, because I think Lincoln ended at the wrong point. I absolutely agree. Two I think Lincoln, yeah. Lincoln, Spielberg should have known where the ending of his movie was, and it was Lincoln walking down the hallway putting on his hat. You are That's your last correct. shot. You don't need yes. the rest of the movie. Yeah. And, uh, so that's his one I that's his one tree too many. And so I think this one I don't hundred percent disagree with you on the ending of Lincoln, not to get into a whole thing on that, but I don't especially have a problem with the with the rest of it. So I would say that uh, to this, yes, the epilogue was one tree too many, perhaps, but it's a very small tree and I'm willing to overlook it. I like that analogy. I'm I'm willing to uh, go along with that. Alright, so anything else you guys wanted to bring up about the book? Um, I would just like to note that, you know, leaving aside the, uh, the the things that we might not have liked, especially about the epistolary format. And by the way, I love that term. <laughs> I can't pronounce it. This so is a... I like the I like the format, but I can't pronounce it. 
This is a fine example of an epistolary book. It's not quite Dracula, which I still think is the finest epistolary novel ever written, but it's up there. I'll also point out something, because I think Steve Kluger is wonderful, and all of his novels are written in this this kind of format. Um, it's a hard format I to get I will say run. that it, this is one of his only books that doesn't have homosexuality as a theme in it at all. But it does have Ethel Merman. Hmm. It, well, come on. <laughs> yeah. One other comment about the the uh, the format and the letter writing, and particularly Charlie's letters, because there were because it's all letters or almost all letters. We got to see so much of Charlie's poor spelling and poor grammar. Oh, um, I know. It takes a bit to get used to, doesn't it? Yeah, it's not. Uh, once oh, I got yes. used to it, I was okay with it, but it's. Is that the kind of thing that, that would have been better in a much smaller dose? Because he, I mean, it's, he's obviously uh, smart enough and can communicate. He just can't spell. Or when he uses the phrase should of instead of should have and stuff like that. And I know intelligent people that do that to this day. I, I know, and it bugs me. <laughs> He's a he's a he's basically he's a farm boy who was born in about 1920 in Racine, Wisconsin. Yeah. Racine, Wisconsin isn't much bigger these days. I mean, it's a decent-sized uh, small city, but it's basically a lot of farm community there. And I'm imagining in 1920, it would have been that much different. Uh, it did take a while to get used to, but I eventually did. Um, I love the running gag of Charlie correcting Joey on asshole. <laughs> yes, that was... <laughs> Kid... Stop putting asshole in quotes and stop putting a space between the two words or I'll break your neck. It drives me nuts. And I love that. They hear he can't spell. You know, he's got grammar and spelling issues all over the place. And, and But that's the thing that ticks him off. I love that. But it gets flipped on him by the rabbi. How the rabbi keeps getting annoyed that, uh, he, that uh, when uh, Charlie writes him something, he keeps spelling rabbi with a Y instead of an I. Oh, see, I think Charlie's totally doing that to wind him up. Because I think he probably oh, he also says on, it yes. as Rabbi. I think he probably pronounces <laughs> yeah. it as Rabbi. By the way, one of my favorite uh, little bits in the book is a uh, moment that the rabbi is uh, is talking about when Charlie uh, Charlie ends up helping uh, Joey learn his uh, Torah portion uh, Torah portion <laughs> Torah portion for uh, his for his bar mitzvah, and with, despite his misgivings, because well, Charlie's not Jewish, and there's a moment where the rabbi is uh, telling the. the now, uh, Joey wants to punch up his, uh, his speech at the bar mitzvah, and he's going to tell the old saw about how, uh, how Moses comes down from uh, Mount Sinai carrying the uh, Ten Commandments and tells everybody, good news, folks, I managed to argue him down from 15. Bad news, adultery's still in. And I can just picture Charlie and Joey delivering his punchline at the same time, and it cracks me up. Oh, a, a bit of fun trivia. The joke about Wonder Woman and Superman... The obscene joke yes. about Wonder Woman and Superman yes. was I was just rewatching The Vicar of Dibley recently, and that's one of the jokes that Geraldine tells the ditzy blonde in the post credit sequence. And and her her and her response to it is hysterical. Cause she's like, I think I think what you're trying to say is that there was an instance of homosexual rape, and that's nothing to joke about. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and Geraldine is like instantly chasing. And I was like, I didn't realize that joke had been around as long as it had. <laughs> Before we get into what we're going to be doing for our next podcast, let's have a moment and say, would you recommend The Last Waltz for people to watch? Amy? Uh, if you're a Martin Scorsese completist or you really like any of the music acts that are in it. I would concur, especially if you want to see uh, Muddy Waters. And I'm on the level, if you're a completist, watch it. If not, just uh, get the album. There's some, several very good albums of the concert that include many more tracks. Now, as for the book, I'll start. Uh, definitely, I believe, definitely read uh, Last Day of Summer. Yeah, I'll recommend any Kluger, any of it, and, and this one particularly. I think it's a good place to start with his books. Um and, and it, it is really funny and touching. I would not Randy? disagree with either of you on that. All right. Wholehearted for Last Day of Summer. Middling for Last Waltz, unless you really, really want to see all of Scorsese. Okay. Now for our next podcast, uh, the theme, which is my turn to choose, I chose. And this kind of goes into a small part of Last Days of Summer, the wonderful part with the spy across the street. Our theme is espionage. Randy, what'd you choose? You've got the uh, book this time Yes, the, uh, the book for the next podcast will be Codename Verity by Elizabeth Wine. Um, I, this is, although it's my pick, it's really a, a recommendation from Amy who basically yells at people on Facebook and Twitter to read this book. So all I know about it at this point is that it involves two young women and espionage in World War II. I believe that is correct, Amy? Espionage and pilots. Okay. And that's all I know, but I've heard very good things about it. That's all you need to know. Don't read any (laughs) more. And don't be be put off by the cover if you get the original hardcover, which looks like it's a uh, Fifty Shades of Grey knockoff. That cover is awful. Don't judge the book by that cover. Horrible. Amy, you have the movie. Well, I, I went back and forth, and gosh, it is hard to find, because I'm trying to stick to this idea that it's something that I like that you two haven't seen. And you two have seen a lot of spy movies. <laughs> so it was really hard for me to come up with something that I had seen and liked that you two hadn't seen. So what we're going to end up going with, um, simply because it fits that criteria, is a fairly recent movie called The Debt. Uh, it's an American remake of an Israeli original, and so you essentially and it's a, a story told in flashbacks. So you essentially have two casts, and um, you know a cast playing the characters in in the present and, and playing them in the in the past, uh, and the wonderful cast of um, Helen Mirren, Karen Hines, Tom Wilkinson, Tom Hardy. Or Sam Wentworth. I get those two confused. I know I shouldn't, but I do. They're just, you know, nameless hunks. Uh, One's Bane, the other's Yeah, whatever. And Jessica Chastain and a guy whose name I can't pronounce, Martin Sokas. C-S-O-K-A-S. You have seen him in things. You just don't realize it. And it's really... I'm interested to hear what you guys think of it, if you feel like it holds together well. Um, I have not seen the Israeli original, so I might, for extra credit, pick that up. Uh, Martin Serkis, Lord Celeborn in Lord of the Rings. Um, 
I, I, I have seen those movies multiple times, and I have no clue offhand who Lord Celeborn is. Always he was also elf. in the Born Supremacy. I, he was one of the villains no, in all, that. Frankly, the, um, honestly, the Born movies kind of blend together for me. He, <laughs> yeah, um, Randy, you'll recognize him because he was in Eon Flux. <laughs> I mean, he said he wanted to watch a movie the, that I thought was terrible, so I made him watch Eon Flux. Oh wait, is he the main villain in Eon Flux? The yeah, kind Trevor of Goodmaster. Oh, okay. Actually, that's a pretty decent performance, yeah. quite frankly. Uh, so anyway, the debt uh, it is available. Um, although unfortunately, it looks like on Amazon you can only buy it; you can't rent it. So uh, you'll want to seek it out either from your local video store or Netflix on disc or Randy, whatever moose you guys poach things from in Canada. So anyway, so the debt, I think you should be able to find it by hook or by crook, and we'll discuss it on the next episode. That sounds good to me, and I think that's the end of our episode for this week. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Uh, Amy, why don't you tell people where people can find you on the Internet? Well, I'm Amy Watts on Twitter, and starting next week, I will resume my gig with weekly recaps of Dancing with the Stars on the Baltimore Sun website, and sometimes I'm lucky and it gets syndicated to other Tribune newspapers. Uh, there's a preview up for the current season right now, um, which I have linked to on Twitter and you can find on the Baltimore Sun site where I'm handicapping this year's crop of quote unquote stars. And do you have an early pick uh, for someone you're rooting for? Well, I'm rooting for Bill Nye because he's a mechanical engineer like my dad. There you I'm go. I'm also, believe it or not, rooting for Snooky because she's short like me. <laughs> Speaking of fake hair colors, Snoo- Snooky makes me feel better about myself because she's tight. She's a little shrimp like me. Um, and I'm also going to be doing the Vampire Diaries this year. Oh, very so nice. So keep an eye out on the Baltimore Sun for my weekly recaps of things. Uh, have you been watching the Vampire Diaries before? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. So you're not coming in blind. No, I mean, I, I haven't recapped it for him before, but I have been watching it. Great. Okay, Randy, where can people where can people find you? And you can find me on Twitter at Randwa, R-A-N-D-O-I-S, which uh, I guess we're going to, uh, again, clarify the uh, correct pronunciation of that. Folks can find me at Joseph Finn on Twitter. That's J-O-S-E-P-H-F as in Frank, I-N-N. That's two N's. It's not pronounced Finn or Fine or Flynn. You can find all of us at tryitandlikeit.blogspot.com. We're also on Facebook. Just search for Try It, You'll Like It. And you can find us on iTunes. And if you do download through iTunes, please, please rate us because that always helps. And that's our show for this week. We'll be back in two weeks with Espionage. Good night, everyone. Bombs today. Bombs of freedom. What I'm selling it.